We're going to step away from our, our study in 2 Timothy this morning, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 19, looking at verses 16 to 22. And let's open in prayer. Father, I lift up, Lord, this morning. I thank you for Clint, for Rhoda and their children. I thank you for their commitment and their love for you. I thank you for the ministry that you have brought them to. I remember when Clint called me and even was still inquiring of where the Lord would lead and, and how you led him, directed him to this ministry, Lord. And look what you're doing. Look at the lives that have been touched and saved. And Father, that's just a work of your hand. It's a guiding of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray, Lord, this morning as we look into your word and, and, and we even talk about evangelism this morning, Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that you would work Lord, that into our hearts, that you would stir the coals of our hearts. Lord, those of us that are maybe feeling a little bit dry and a little bit uh, not, uh, not useful, Lord, that we would maybe be revived this morning, that we would have a new revival in our own heart as Pastor Kyle shared of just what you're speaking into his heart about sharing the gospel and being that witness, Lord, that we would be those Christians, Lord, that are unashamed of our faith. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The text that we're going to be in this morning is Jesus in the rich young ruler. And we might say this was a witnessing opportunity that we can read in Scripture, but it involves Jesus himself. And it involves this young man, this ruler that was rich. And there's really no greater minister of the gospel than Jesus Christ himself, is there? There's no greater example for us to look to on how Jesus would handle a soul. How Jesus was able to get, it, get to the nitty gritty of a person's soul. And we read and uh, follow along with me in, in verse 16. It says, Now behold, one came and said to Jesus, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Asking a question. And so Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, Keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to Jesus, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 16 starts with the words, now behold. In other words, this was something that 
happened suddenly. It, it, we might say it came out of nowhere. That this man approaches Jesus, comes up to Jesus, and makes an inquiry. You know, and quite often that's what I found is the times that we sit back and we go, you know what, that was a God thing. God did that. It comes out of nowhere. It comes in a time when we're not expecting it. But that's why we're called as Christians to be ready always to give an answer. We're called to be in that place where when those bells start going off in your head, so to speak, and you know it's the Holy Spirit and He's telling you to be bold, to open your mouth to speak, that we take opportunity to do that. Verse 16 says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher. If you have an old King James, it says good master. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? What a great question. I mean, is there any better question than that? That anyone could ever ask. What do I need to do to go to heaven? What do, what do you require to go to heaven? What does God require? The same encounter that we're reading in Matthew's Gospel, it's recorded in Mark's Gospel, it's recorded in Luke's Gospel. And I think it's because it's a significant story that we need to read. It, it's a significant story that gives us a lot of insight into our witness as Christians. And that, to do that, we have to go into the other Gospels to kind of draw out some other details. Actually, in Mark 10.17... The parallel to this, we read, now as Jesus was going out on a road. So here's Jesus on this road, walking. And Mark's Gospel says that one came running to him. So here's this rich young ruler, as we would call him. He comes running to him. We're told that he knelt before Jesus, which was a position of respect and honor. And he asks him, he says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 18, it says that a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Luke's Gospel tells us that he was a certain ruler. He was one that was zealous to get this question answered. He comes running to Jesus. Actually, he, he came running because he believed he might have some... He probably heard about Jesus. Maybe he witnessed some of the workings of Jesus and maybe some of his miracles. He knew that there was something special about Jesus. And he comes running with that most important question. There's three... I've seen main observations that we can make about this young man. He was a person of authority and status. Luke tells us that he was this ruler, possibly a ruler of a synagogue in the local area. He was a, we might call a religious leader. Maybe somebody like Nicodemus who came to Jesus on that night. And so that's the type of man that is coming to Jesus. Some of us come from that kind of background. We were religious. We, we did all the religious things. 
We said the religious words. We knew, you know, we, we, we went to our church our whole life. But we weren't born again. We weren't saved. We didn't have eternal life. And it, and it took the Lord one day showing us that we were missing it. We didn't have it. We also read that he was a man young in age and that he was wealthy. That he was uh, a, a, this wealthy young man that had great possessions. He comes to Jesus publicly as Jesus is walking on the road. He comes running to Jesus. He comes respectful to Jesus and kneels down before him. He was interested in the state of his own future. Uh, where he was going to go when he dies. What's going to happen? And many of us have pondered that question before we got saved. He thought that something more must have to be done for me to have eternal life. He, at least in his mind, he was thinking that maybe there's more. Maybe I need something more. Maybe this religion and this moral life, this position as a ruler, that it's not enough. He knew that he was a teacher. He called him master. He was hoping for answers that maybe we're filling a void. You know, when you do that whole religious thing for a long time and you're still just empty, that's what it'll do. Religion will leave you empty. Having a relationship with Jesus Christ gives you life. It gives you, it's, it's, it's what we're all about when you know Jesus Christ. We're about life and we're about giving life to others by sharing the gospel with them. But there's also some negatives that we see in this young man coming to Jesus. He was ignorant of his moral inability. He couldn't keep the commandments. He couldn't do it. Many times people think they can. There's actually people I think that really believe they're living up to the Ten Commandments. People try it. Jesus sees it. Jesus calls them out on it. He thought that he was possibly good enough. And you see, Jesus isn't concerned with good people. He came to, to seek and to save them which are lost. He came to find those people that were in need of a physician. Those that really realize they are sick from sin. Those are the ones that he seeks out. It's the religious people, the moral people, the religious people that think they're all right that is the most difficult people to witness to. He thought that as the external works maybe was all that God required. But he fell short. He fell short of actually understanding what his guilt was. He, he didn't even see his own heart the state that it was. But here's the important thing. Jesus saw his heart. You see, there's not a one of us here that can stand before the Lord and just say what we think that he wants to hear, that he doesn't see our heart. And he goes, you know what? That's insincere. That's hypocritical. That's not really you, what you're saying. And you know what? The Lord is very capable of calling us out. And he called this young man out. His inquiry with Jesus, calling him a teacher, it was common of the day. But here he's calling him a good teacher. 
He's adding something to it. He's approaching him in that way. The main question that he had is, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? That's the question. Give us some insight. Give me some insight. What's interesting also about this man's question is the fact that he came to Jesus as a teacher thinking that he would get that answer. He, he, he actually believed that he would get that answer from Jesus. Even those who do not know Jesus as Messiah, even those that haven't come into a relationship with him, Jesus approaches those hearts. He uses you as a tool. Have you ever been used as a tool of the Lord? People that approach you, I call them divine appointments. You hear me say that quite often. Those divine appointments. You know, it's at the pump and gas at the gas station. It's in the store. It's wherever you're at at work. It's people. It's divine encounters. And Jesus already knows all. It's Lydia at the riverside. As, as the Holy Spirit led Paul out there. And here's this woman whom the Lord had already prepared her heart. That's what God does. He prepares the hearts of souls so that he, when you come along, you're just a tool. You're an instrument that God can use and speak through. But he's also was thinking, like so many today, this young man, that being good and doing good is all that God requires. It's all he wants. If we just do good to people, you know, try to help people, give, do that, that's all God requires. Did you know, and I think most of us do know this, that there is not any other religion in all of the world, no religion, and there's many of them, that other than Christianity, that a person gets saved by grace through faith alone. That's it. We're the only one. We're unique. For by grace are you saved through faith. No other religion. Every other religion, all of them, in all of the world, have some form of a works foundation. The reason why is because if it's not by faith and grace, if it's not that way, you have no other alternative. The only alternative I have is that I must do something for God if I'm going to go to heaven. You have no other choice. So you go on what you know. If a person has not come to know that salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ, their only option is to build upon a works foundation. They have no other. Paul wrote in Romans 3.20, By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh can be made right in the eyes of God, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. God had a specific purpose for the law, and He used it to bring people to the end of themselves, to show that they had a need of a Savior. Paul said that was the purpose of the law. In Galatians 3.22, we read, Paul wrote again, but the Scripture has confined 
all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, listen to this, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the law, no longer under the tutor. We've been set free only by faith in Jesus Christ. This young ruler, he wanted to know how he could have eternal life. I think that this is uh, the biggest question that anyone could ever ask or get answered. But think about the question that he approached Jesus with. It, it, to ask that question, it'd be like you having one of your neighbors come up to you, somebody at work come up to you and say, you know what, hey, I've been looking at your life for a while now. I've been observing you as a neighbor. There's something different about you. And I know you're one of these Christians. You know, and, and could you tell me how I could have eternal life? I mean, I, you must know. Could you tell me? If somebody came to you that way and, and inquired that way, made that kind of appeal to you, you'd be chomping at the beat, bit to tell them. You'd be saying, yes, let me tell you. And you'd lead them to Christ because their heart was prepared and open and they wanted to hear. We all know that not every witnessing opportunity comes that easy, does it? I've had some like that. I've had some that started out really rocky in the beginning and I still ended up seeing that person come to Christ. But it wasn't easy in the beginning conversation. But think about what your response would be if somebody came to you that way. And are you only looking for those occasions where someone would approach you? How about us approaching them? and asking them that very important question. I remember years ago, hearing a story about a young man who attended an evangelistic crusade. The invitation was given. People came down to the, the stage down there, and there was a counselor down there to meet up with the various people that came down. One young man came down to the field and he had long hair. It was in the day when long hair was popular. And the counselor said to the young man, as he began his conversation, would you be willing to cut your hair to follow after Jesus, to give your life to Jesus? Would you be willing to cut your hair? How many of us in our mind would even think to ask that kind of a question? We know that the hair doesn't have anything to do with a person's salvation. We wouldn't put that kind of a demand upon a person to receive Jesus Christ, to cut their hair. But here's the thing. This is what we need to understand. We need to be led of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead us to say things that don't seem like it's your traditional way of leading a person to Christ. Sometimes it's something as small as that long hair. If that person is saying, you know, there's no way. I mean, to follow Christ, I'm not cutting this hair. 
Uh, those things that stand in the way of salvation sometimes are that small. They're little things that are big things in the heart of people. Sometimes it's a small sin. No sin is really small. But sometimes it's something very small that they enjoy doing. And they're unwilling to give it up for Christ. Those things can stand in the way of a heart that is not ready to receive Christ. When we witness, when we share our faith, we need to be accurate in what we say. But we also need to be led of the Holy Spirit. We need to have God's Spirit in us. We need to hear His voice. And, and I've had many opportunities where I've heard the voice of the Lord. You see, every witnessing opportunity is different. There's no pat way. You know, let me give you the Romans road. Carry it in your pocket. That's all you need. It typically doesn't go that way. Every person, every individual, you know, we, we become information givers is what I look at evangelism like. The gospel's already laid out. It's already there for us to share. All we are is information givers. We're clearing up misconceptions that people have in their mind about God. We're clearing up misconceptions of what people think they need to do to get to heaven. You're an information giver. And we, we take those opportunities to clear up misconceptions that people have in their mind. Remember Jesus when He came to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And we're told that He spoke to a ruler on that night and told him, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will never see nor will you ever enter into the kingdom of God. Wow. And that got the wheels turning in Nicodemus's mind, didn't he? I mean, the master evangelist using a term, you need to be born again, Nicodemus. What do you mean be born again? I've already been born. How am I, am I going to enter my mother's womb a second time and be born again? Jesus says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed at what I'm saying to you, Nicodemus. You must be born again. The master evangelist. Somebody that was being led of the Holy Spirit. Zeroed in on the hard issue of Nicodemus. Remember Jesus in John chapter 4 when He came to that woman at the well. And He, and he came and He, he says, if, if you knew the gift of God, He's speaking to this woman, another occasion, another instance, another soul. And He says, if you were, knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. And that, in that, um, I mean, living water. You know what I call these things? I call these Holy Spirit one-liners. It's Philip with a eunuch going across the desert, and he hears him reading from the book of Isaiah, and he simply says to the man up in the chariot, he says, "Do you understand what you're reading?" And the eunuch responds to Philip, and he says, "How can I unless a man guides me?" And you see Philip climbing up into the chariot on the back of this camel and sitting there and begins to share Jesus with him from Isaiah 53. Isn't that amazing? Holy Spirit one-liners. 
God in that moment giving you the word to speak. He says, don't be afraid of what you're going to say. I will give you the words to speak in the moment that you need it. Notice it's in the moment. Look at verse 17. Look how Jesus responds to this rich young ruler. So Jesus says to him, after that most important question, why do you call me good? Asking a question. No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Again, our first response to what Jesus just said here might be, that's bad evangelism. That's not really good evangelism, Jesus. I mean, you're telling him that he needs to keep the commandments? Uh, That's not what we would say to someone. You need to keep the commandments if you want to go to heaven. We might say this was bad evangelism. Keep in mind, Jesus hasn't been to the cross yet. He hasn't brought forth that full redemption. But here He is calling this man, this religious man out, and telling him that he needs to keep the commandments. And I believe that it's because Jesus sees his heart. He knows what's going on. He's going to drive a point home. But look at the first thing that Jesus does. He points this man to the only one who is good. This rich young ruler didn't even realize who he was speaking to other than you're a good teacher. But, but did he know that he was God in flesh? You see, it's important. It's essential that a person realize who Jesus is. Come to believe who Jesus is. There's no one good but one. That's God. He's saying to this to this religious man, why do you call me good? We might be thinking, wait a second. Didn't this young man just ask Jesus what he needed to do to be saved, to have eternal life, to go to heaven? I mean, there's the question. Why are you going off on this track? Why not just tell him? If you just believe in me, you know, and get right to that. So Jesus responds with a question and then two statements to follow. Uh, Maybe different from what we would have done. Look what he says. Why do you call me good is the first question. And then really these are statements. No one is good but one. That is God. He's making a statement to him. But if you want to enter into life, then keep the commandments. There's the second statement that he makes to him. In this question, Jesus was making more of a statement about his deity to this man than he was asking a question. He was saying to this man, if you acknowledge me as good teacher, then you need to acknowledge me as God. You need to know who you're speaking with. Like the woman at the well, if you would have known, you would have asked. And I would have given you living water. No one is good but one. That is God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in this particular verse here, they all use the same exact words. And I think that that's important. The same wording is recorded in all three. 
You see, having an accurate understanding of who Jesus is, is essential. I think we all know that. Those of us that are born again, those of us that are truly, truly saved, we know that having an accurate understanding of who Jesus is, is essential for eternal life. You know, you, you can't be a person that goes, you know, I, I believe in God. But you know this Jesus thing, you know, you know, you know the cross and all. Hey, I don't know about that. It doesn't work that way. A person can't say they believe in God, but I don't really believe in Jesus. We read in Acts 4.12 that there's no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. That name is Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.22, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. For he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. They go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. It's not sufficient to say that I believe in God and that's all God requires. And then Jesus tells this young man, but if you want to enter into life, then keep the commandments. Again, it's, it's not good or it doesn't at least sound like good evangelism telling somebody that they must keep the commandments. I thought it was grace. I thought it was faith. You know, Jesus knows the heart. He knows that. And even though the redemption, full redemption plan of God had not been worked out at the cross yet, even though Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, He still needed to put His faith, like all of the Old Testament saints, looking ahead, looking to that Messiah, He still had to exercise faith. But now look how He responds to Jesus. And this is the beginning of what I call that self-righteousness that begins to take over in a person's soul. I've seen it many times, and you have too. As a matter of fact, all of us probably at some point had some kind of self-righteousness that told ourselves, I think me and God are all right. He says in verse 18, he says to Jesus, which ones? (laughs) He jumps at that. Which ones? He's a religious man. And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. He's quoting from the law, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then he finishes it with Leviticus 19.18 and he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's actually using the law with this religious man. Jesus quotes five of those ten commandments. And the ones that he quotes has to do with man's relationship to man. Remember on the, back on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus addressed those Pharisees, those who were misrepresenting the law of God. In Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You see, God's standard is not man's standard. When that young man says, which ones? 
that self-righteousness starting to well up in his own heart. I, I think I might be able to answer this. I think I have kept these commandments. I've done all that I believe that God has required of me. Jesus knew there was a deficiency in this man's heart. Jesus said also in the Sermon on the Mount, you shall not lust in your heart. You see, just lusting in your heart, you've committed adultery. And see, Jesus always takes it a step further, doesn't He? He doesn't let any religious person, He doesn't let anybody skate around. And you know, he, he, he takes that law and He brings it out to what its intent was. To get to the heart of man. Not the exterior, but the interior. Jesus then in verse 19 he quotes Leviticus 19, 18 and says to the young man, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, uh, in, in verse 20, we see something else of his self-righteousness. He says, the, the young man said to Jesus, all these things I have kept from my youth. Did Have any of you ever verbally kind of said, you know, I, I think I keep the Ten Commandments. I've had people say that to me. I think I have. Maybe not perfectly, but I do keep them. You see how we toy those things around? Yeah, maybe not perfectly, but I do keep them. I've kept all these things from my youth. What do I still lack, he asked Jesus. Mark 10, 21, we read that after this man responded, and I love this, after this man responded with these words, all these things I have kept from my youth, Jesus says to this youth, this young religious man, it says, looking at him, he loved him. Can you just see the face of Jesus? Is this rich young ruler this religious man says, I've kept all these things from my youth. What do I still need to do? And then Jesus just has this look on his face of his love for this young man, knowing that you're missing it. You're missing it, but I still love you. How many of us went in that kind of walk, that kind of state, I should say, before we came to Christ? And his love was still being extended to you and extended to you. But we were doing it all the wrong way. We were doing it in our own self-righteousness. Jesus says in verse 21 to him, He says, if you want to be perfect, that word perfect there could be the word complete. If you want to be complete, then go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Wow, what a demand. Mark's Gospel reads this way, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and take up your cross and follow Me. Again, this doesn't sound like good evangelism. You know, here's the master evangelist using words like this and I think, why are you taking him down this road? He simply asked you how he could have eternal life. But again, Jesus, he knows the person's heart. 
that we often miss when we share our faith. We're not always just, Lord, let me see really what's going on here. The things they say, how they say it, how they're coming across, how they're responding to the questions. Help me to see what's going on inside. That I might respond by the leading of your Holy Spirit to hit the nail on the head. You see, that's what we want to do. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Hit the nail on the head. It's also interesting that Jesus didn't give this young man the 10th commandment of the law. You know what the 10th commandment is? Thou shalt not covet. Why didn't he throw that one in for the rich young ruler? Thou shalt not covet. From the very beginning of this conversation with this man, Jesus knew that he had a covetous heart. This man loved his material things. And and as a matter of fact, like people today that love their sin more than they love God, he loved his material things more than he loved God. You see, the things that we put our love and our hearts toward, that's what we are. If you love money, see, money is not the problem. It's the love of money. It's the love of wealth. It's the love of those things that become the problem in our heart. Look at verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away. He, 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 notice that Jesus let him go away. I mean, what would we have done after we've had somebody say, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And then we laid out the ten we laid all these things out, and then the person's standing there feeling, I can't, I can't, I can't give this thing up, and starts to walk. Well, wait a second. Wait, you know, you don't have to give it all up. I'm not saying you have to sell everything to, you know, I'm not saying, you know, Jesus let him go. The man with the long hair. I mean, why is something of that nature, material things? You mean that that could stand in my way of having eternal life? Wow. What's the Lord looking for? He's not looking for a religious person. He's looking for a changed a heart that is open to receive. He's looking at a person's heart. He lets him go. And it says that he went away sorrowful. Jesus knew that he wasn't ready. I call these opportunities when I share my faith, when I'm sensing that this is not going to lead to probably a salvation, tugging at green fruit. You ever tried to pull a green fruit that's not ripe off of a tree? And you break the whole branch off getting it off? It's not ready. It's not time. This was a time to seed, plant seeds. I didn't have an opportunity here to lead them to Christ, but God used me to plant some seeds. Jesus knew that his heart right now was not ready to receive. And he let him go. And the young man went away sorrowful. But Jesus looked at that man and he loved him 
even in that. There's two things that must happen for a person to have eternal life. Two things that must happen. You can't have one without the other. They're called the Siamese twins by some theologians. It's faith and repentance. You won't have anybody in heaven that says, you know, I repented of all my sin, but I don't believe in Jesus. Not going to happen. You won't have anybody that says, I believe in Jesus and he died on the cross and this and that, but I've never really repented. You won't find anyone in heaven like that either because the two go hand in hand. You have to repent and you have to believe. Actually, Paul said that to the Ephesian elders when he was leaving them in Acts chapter 20. He says, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed to you and I taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks. And then he says this, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the gospel in a nutshell. It's what we need to go out in our message. We need to tell people they need to, they need forgiveness of sins. And you have that authority and that right as a Christian to tell somebody, you know what? If you ask God to forgive you, He will forgive you of all your sin. He'll wipe your slate clean. He'll give you eternal life. We have that God-given right that He has given to us. Incredible. It's a privilege to open our mouth for Christ. When we share the gospel with people, we need to make sure that that person understands the gospel. They understand the message. And, and they understand what, what God demands for salvation. Repent and believe. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of your sin. But even repent of your unbelief. Put your faith in me. And I'll save you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a statement that, that, that gives a lot of assurance to somebody when you share it. But with that statement, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they're calling upon the name of the Lord. Lord, would you forgive me? Would you come into my heart and life? Would you save me from my sin? I believe what you did on the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection. I believe that. I apply that however they think of it in their heart. But that is the gospel. Remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount also in chapter 6, verse 24, that you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. You see, this young man thought that he could. If I could only keep my stuff, if you'll just allow me to keep my wealth, and, and, and then... I'll believe if you just let me keep these things, I, I want to go to heaven. But don't ask me to give up my stuff. Don't ask that of me. Don't ask me to, to stop doing this particular sin that I love. Don't stop me from doing what is so important to me. You see, those are putting demands the opposite way back on the Lord. I'm saying, you know what, I'll follow you, Lord, if you'll let me do, if you'll let me keep what I have. The only way that we come to Christ is full surrender. Me, Lord, I need you. 
I need you in my life. I need, I need your forgiveness. You're my only hope of salvation. There, there, there's no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. You're the only one that can save me. You're the only one that can redeem me. In closing, in 2 Peter 3.9, this is a promise. This is a promise to all of us that have family members and neighbors and co-workers that need Christ. It tells us something about the very nature of who Jesus is. Even in the, the way that He approached that rich young ruler and loved him anyway. It tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness. But His long-suffering, God is patient towards us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of our Lord. It's what we can stand upon. Every time we go out and we have those people tell us no. Those family members who don't want to have anything to do with it. And we're praying for them. When we're looking for opportunity that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's a just God. He's a loving God. He wants everyone to come. But they have a choice. They have a free will. And this young, rich young ruler, he had a choice. He made a decision. He said, you know what? I can't do that. It doesn't tell us in Scripture whether or not the rich young ruler that we call him ever came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, though he may have. It just doesn't tell us. And there's a lot of people that have rejected you, rejected your gospel, that you don't know in time. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep looking for opportunity. And keep asking and praying for them that God would bring them to a place where they would really see their need for Christ. And God wants to do that. He wants to use you. May the Lord use each one of us this week that you would step out in faith, that you, would, that you would do something out of the ordinary. Do something that will, in a sense, shake you up a little bit because this is not me typically. That I would open my mouth and make a Holy Spirit one-liner as God gives that to me to somebody and see if God won't open a conversation that you'll have an opportunity to tell somebody about Christ. I'll tell you what. Everything that I've ever done as a pastor, everything that I've ever done as a missionary, everything I've done in ministry, nothing trumps, as you could see in Clint, as he was up here talking about these girls and these ones that have accepted Christ, nothing trumps. I don't like that word trump, but I do like trump. <laughs> nothing trumps that opportunity that God gives us to be able to open our mouth and to speak for Him. And God wants to use each and every one of us. Pray for boldness. God will give it to you. And then step on the water and see what, what God won't do. And so let's, uh, let's have the worship team come up.